And we're going to pick up in chapter 6, kind of the latter part of chapter 6, and see so if you'd like to go ahead and turn there. Um, just as a re reminder, we, um, we looked at um, the whole, the idea in chapter 6 of uh, the time being now for them to, uh, both the, re the latter part of chapter 5, but the beginning of chapter 6, as far as the time being now uh, for them to reconcile, um, but also the, the idea in, in kind of the mid part of the chapter around Paul's successes being different from the way the world would, would um, look and, I guess, title success. Uh, and then in verses 11 through 13 is where we kind of ended last week with Paul's appeal to them to open their hearts. And so that's where I'd like us to pick up and read through verses 11 through the end of the chapter and then the first verse in chapter 7, which I think ties uh, very closely into the thoughts we're going to look at at the end of this chapter. So if you'd read along with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but are restrained in your own affections. Now in, a likely, in, now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from, the, from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So I read verses 11, 12, and 13, uh, and we talked about it, I think, uh, and, and addressed that as far as them opening their hearts and, and listening, accepting the teachings of Paul. But I wanted to circle back to it briefly just because, as I said last week, I think those verses really set up in multiple ways what he shares with them, what he directs them to do in the latter part of this chapter. So first of all, accepting his teaching uh, but also, I think that we have to look at this and think about the verse 12, you're not restrained by us, but restrained by your own affections. And so they are restrained by their connection to those false teachers, by their connection to the world, by their desire to continue to live in the world and, and partake in those things of the world. And so he goes on now in verses 14 and following, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. And so again, that affection, that tie, that love for things of the world or for false teachers is what he's continuing to address in the latter part of this chapter. Uh, and so I wanted to circle back to that briefly. And so he, he opens up with a verse that I think we're probably all very familiar with, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Some versions, uh, the King James version, the new King James, I think also says, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. And so, so what is a yoke? Um, you know, not a farmer, 
not ever dealt in that space before, but I think it's a, something that, that probably is familiar to all of us. It's the idea of something that ties two animals together. I picture in my mind uh, that wooden, um, that wooden arched kind of device that sits over the top of two oxen and ties them, links them together for them to do more difficult work, for them to plow, for them to haul larger loads. And when we were up in Pennsylvania, we'd go out to Amish country where they still work with horses. And you'd see those horses, six, eight horses, massive horses that are bound together plowing fields. They're not bound together with some kind of wooden something. They were bound together with leather straps and, and chain straps. And so I think that same principle applies, um, whether we're talking about leather or wood, but the idea that they're joined together, they're linked together in a common work. And so that's the idea that's being shared here. And we can look at other passages in the Old Testament that speak to God directing the people not to join things that shouldn't be joined together. Uh, in, in Leviticus 19, it talks about um, breeding unlike animals together or sowing seeds or tying fabrics that are not similar together. In Deuteronomy 22, it's talking about that, that joining the animals in work that are not common. And so it's a principle that goes all the way back to the beginning of God communicating to his people. And so Paul here is using that idea to direct them not to have partnerships, not to be joined in work uh, or in any way to unbelievers. Uh, and like I said, the, this thought is wrapped up, I think, in, in chapter 7, not wrapped up, but maybe kind of um, summed up in chapter 7, verse 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the defilement of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the God. So cleansing themselves, removing that, the dirt, the filth of the world, removing that connection to the world. Um, and so he goes on in, in these, these latter parts, these latter verses, and talks about how kind of incompatible all of these things are. You look, what, what harmony has Christ with Belial? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? And so these things that are just fundamental opposites. And I think that's what he's speaking to here. It doesn't make sense for, for an unbeliever to be linked to a believer any more than it does for righteousness and lawlessness to be linked together. Uh, an idol and, and the God that we know being linked together, light and darkness, it makes no sense. And so in the same idea, it makes no sense for us to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Makes no sense to go back to the Deuteronomy 22 to put a donkey alongside of an ox and expect them to have much success in their work. Makes no sense for us to do that. Um, and so we should always, in all parts of our lives, seek those who will help us bear through the difficulties of life, but will also strengthen us. If you've got a donkey and an ox, a giant ox, they're going to get pulled to the side, whether it's the ox overpowering the donkey or the donkey dragging the, do the ox down, or maybe, I don't know, there could be some strong donkeys out there that could do that also. The, the point, though, is 
they're going to get pulled aside from their set work, from that straight and narrow, in the same way as we as Christians can get pulled aside by being unequally yoked to someone we shouldn't be. And last week I said I wanted us to really talk about this beyond just marriage. I think in a lot of cases this scripture Rightly so, it speaks to or is used to, to support marriage and joining of two Christians together in marriage. Um, and I think it's very appropriate to use the scripture for this. But in the context of what Paul is speaking to here, it's much broader than that. Can it be applied to, to marriage? Yes. Should it be applied to marriage? I think it should. Uh, but I think more importantly, for the context of this passage, it's much broader than that. It's our friendships with, with others in the world. It's our, maybe our close business partnerships even with others of the world. It's our social, what we're doing socially with those of the world. Um, it's, it's any of those close connections with those that are outside the faith that can and in, in, in a lot of likelihood will lead us astray. Um, and, and some of the comments that were made after class last week, I think were, were very helpful. It can be the, the clubs that we join, any kind of memberships we have, any kind of political allegiances that we have, anything in this world that is not aligned to, um, to the word as we know it aligned to God in our Christian principles as we know it, as we read in the scriptures, can lead us astray. And so we need to be careful and we need to be also, as this says, not align ourselves to those things. Um, and so um, we need to seek that companionship, that fellowship, those close relationships with those that have that like precious faith. Um, and so that's the tone and context of this, this passage. It's not just marriage. It's everything in our lives. We need to examine um, all relationships we have in this life. And does it apply to marriage? Yes, it does. I mean, that's the closest relationship we can have on this, this planet. Um, and without a faithful mate, it's very difficult for us to bear through the difficulties, endure the trials of life, the difficulties of life, not to mention raise children. Uh, as you bring children up, especially teenage children, uh, it's difficult enough to do it as a pair, to do it as a solo person, uh, as an individual trying to raise children to be the faithful people they should be, makes it doubly difficult. Um, and even if that, that other your partner, your, your spouse is, um, you know, a Christian in air quotes. If you're having a pull between where the children go and what they do and what they believe, it's going to cause a whole lot of difficulty in trying to get that, that child to be a faithful person. That's not even to say someone who is diametrically opposed to the Christian ideals and the Christian principles that we learn. If there are examples, and we all know them, of a father or mother who wants to bring their children to church to learn the word, to, to guide them where they need to be, and the, the other spouse is actively trying to pull the children away. So it's important as from a marriage standpoint, but it's also important from 
all that we do. Um, I think about how Misty and I approach this. We have a lot of, of um, acquaintances. We've made friends through scouts with the kids, through softball, through other things. We have a lot of acquaintances, but I don't name any of those people as true friends. We're very guarded with how we bring them into our family. They don't come into our house typically for, um, I guess, close friendship a lot of time. And so I think that's the idea. We need to be very careful about how we align ourselves to all of those individuals. Uh, that are outside of the faith. So I'm going to pause there. I've talked for a lot. Um, and see if there are comments or if anybody would like to add to. I'll get you next. I'll get Eric first. Um, I just wanted to say that um, that your friendships are... My best friend happens not to be a Christian. I've tried to teach her the way and everything, but she just doesn't want to want to live faithful, and and that affected me growing up because growing up I didn't stay faithful because I didn't hang around certain people who were not not Christians, and that affect that affects your children. That affects the whether they're going to stay faithful or whether they're not they're not going to stay faithful to the, to the thing. I was raised in a very Christian upbringing and everything, but when I got older, because of the influences that I had in my life that were my friends, I went, I went back into the world because of it. So, it's a very important that you, that you stay with people of the same faith, and that you stay pe with brothers and sisters that are in the church. Because if you don't. It's going to lead you down a really yeah. bad path. It can lead you astray. Eric? So, 14, 15, and 16, and I agree completely with you, this applies to any relationship, but the closer the relationship, the more significant it becomes. He says basically the same thing over and over again in mm -hmm. several different ways. He could have just said, don't bind yourself with an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. He goes on and says this several ways, so it makes it very clear I mean, this boils down to we are binding ourselves to someone who is serving Satan. Mm -hmm. No matter how nice a person they are, no matter how much we may like them, if they are, have not been obedient to the gospel, they're serving Satan. And by binding ourselves with them in any way, we are setting ourselves up for more likely their influence on us than our influence on them. And, and when it comes to marriage, now we know there are situations where Christians are married to non-Christians. And 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3 both deal with that and specifically speak to the fact that if you're married to an unbeliever, you're not to leave them if they consent to live with you and how to influence them, right? But making that choice initially is a completely different situation. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree completely. I mean, I think First uh, Corinthians 7 is dealing with more those, I read it as those that are converted after their marriage and, and especially in the face of what they're dealing with. And in that time period, as far as persecution, as far as the difficulties that are, that are facing Christians in that time, you know, there's some spouses, of, uh, unbelieving spouses that might want to leave. And it says, let them go. But if they 
consent to continue to be married, then stay married. And so I agree. I think as we're making the decision about spouses, and again, broaden it, friendships, uh, partnerships, any kind of closeness, we need to be very careful in, in who we're choosing because it all comes back to who we're aligning to ourselves to. Are we aligning ourselves to God? You know, you think about, I think about passages, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Okay, but I'm going to choose somebody that's not a faithful person to align myself to. Well, those things are kind of incompatible in my mind. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, you're going to try to do everything you can to stay it aligned. It shows at the very least an extreme lack of maturity on our part yeah. and a misunderstanding of the relationship we have with God yeah. because we've just put a non-believer above our relationship with God. Yeah. There have been a lot of good points made already about this. Um, I, I think uh, what strikes me about it is this is a principle that we go by, um, and it assumes that we know, hey, we got work to do. So I, I think there's a, a phase with relationships where you're teaching, where you're um, trying to help them get to where they can be workers. But when you're making a decision, and it's, it's like we have a choice of who we are to be bound with or yoked with um, so that they are not dragging us down by not being, you know, on the same, at the same pace as we are, and they're not, you know, digging their heels in. Um, so it, it, it's, an, it's a very interesting and widely applicable uh, principle. Yeah. Um, the other thing is... Sorry, my, um, I, the, the verse that, uh, where it talks about God is the light and in him is no darkness. Mm -hmm. it, it reminded me of that too. Yeah, very, very true. And I mean, this passage talks about light and darkness. They're kind of diametrically opposed. God is light. Um, and so in him is no darkness. And so I think it definitely applies. And so I, I thought, um, don't have it up there, but I thought about Hebrews chapter three, and so the in in my mind to kind of wrap all of this up is to Eric's point. These can be nice people. They can be people maybe we we have some attraction to, and we're trying to teach, but we have to come to a point where we realize. Um, that maybe they're not going to. They're going to dig their heels in and they're going to continue to reject. And so what is our end goal? Our end goal is, is to remain faithful and our end goal is heaven. And so there has to be a point where we make a decision where, where am I going to focus? Um, what am I going to focus on? What relationships? I thought about Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 14. Um, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We become partakers in Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We have to be careful that we hold fast. We also have to be careful that in verse 12, falling away from the living God. If we align ourselves to the wrong people, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in friendships, they can pull us away from the living God. And so we have to make a decision. Uh, are we going to hold firm? Are we going to stand firm in both who we align ourselves to, whether it's marriage, whether it's in partnerships, whether it's in friendships? Are we going to hold firm to God, his word, 
Are we going to allow the world to, to steal our affections? Again, back to the verses that, that Paul presented to the Corinthians, presents to us, uh, their, their afflictions weren't pulled away by Paul. Their afflictions or their, their affections were not pulled away by Paul. Their affections were pulled away by their own desires and their own love for, for the world and for these false teachers. Bruce. Do you think Paul here is reminding them of the things that he reminded them of in his first letter to them? They were being persuaded by uh, Greek oratory, the plebeian system of the Roman Empire, the uh, idols. They were going into temples just so they could get free food and, and do things. But what they were really doing was influencing perhaps other Christians. And so I think that's why he mentions uh, the the temple of God, what does it have to do with idols and and other things? Uh, and the things that you mentioned can become our idols. The world can become our idols. And so he says, come out of the world. Mm -hmm. I think he's saying, it doesn't say the world, but it says, come out of these things. Mm -hmm. But we are, we are to be in the world, but not of the world, which we've all heard. Yeah, that's a good kind of transition into the, the last comment or last comments that I'm going to make around um, these passages. In verse 17 and 18, he says, um, again, paraphrasing a little bit, coming out of, come out of the world is quotation from Isaiah 52. So the end part of verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. So cleanse themselves, come out from, from this. In Isaiah 52, quotation, uh, Isaiah speaking to the children in Babylonian captivity, uh, telling them as they come out to not take with them that Babylonian, anything from Babylon, keep themselves separate, keep themselves pure. Um, and it's used again by John in Revelation 18. And, and both of these um, apply to us, obviously apply to the Corinthians as far as keeping separate from those things of the world. Um, both, both instances in, in Revelation, it specifically uh, talks about Babylon and being separate. Uh, so any kind of oppressive, any kind of false teaching, any kind of proud, arrogant, impure, abominable, any of these false teaching, any of the worldly influence, Paul calls for the Corinthians to come out. We're called to come out and be separate. Um, and so I think that um, back to what Bruce said, I was going to make a similar comment you look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, talking about not participating in idol worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and following, talks about not having that sexual immorality and purity. Um, I thought, think back to some of the things that Eric and I talked about several weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Um, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6 is talking about the correction that they made to some of these individuals in their midst, but it says, as the punishment which was imposed by the majority. Didn't say the punishment that was imposed by all. And so there's still those in this church 
who were going back to, I think, some of the things that, that he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians and falling back into those. And at the very least, they're, they're aligning themselves to false teachers rather than to the true word. And, and again, I think, Bruce, your points are exactly what I was thinking. I think that he's going back and circling back to those things and calling them, telling them to come out from among those things. You think about it, it could be the, the society of Corinth at the time. It could be those issues are still, they've dealt with in a larger sense, but there's still those that are not completely aligned to making those corrections as they should have. Again, I think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, by the majority, there's still a minority that I think are still wanting to fall back into that. So to kind of wrap this up, it's not a call for isolation. It's not a call for us to get into our little, the, I guess it's not four walls here, six walls, however many walls, and not interact with anybody out in the world. Um, we're the light of the world. We're the light um, shining into the world. We're the salt. We need to try to teach those, but we just need to be very careful um, about who we're truly aligning ourselves to, um, those close, intimate relationships, and separate ourselves from the corruption. As we're teaching those that are in error, we have to be very careful that we don't get pulled into error. Um, and so, um, and, and again, why? Because I think back to Romans chapter 8, I got it up here, um, why? Because we have named him as our king. We've aligned ourselves to him and in his promises. Um, and one of those promises is that being a fellow heir with Christ. And so if we don't hold to that, we lose that, that fellowship with God. We lose that relationship with God. We lose out on those promises that he's made to us. And so... Um, to kind of, I want to go ahead and touch on verse one, and then I'll pause and see if there are any other comments. But why all of these promises that have been given us? He's going to be our father, and we're going to be his children. We're going to be fellow heirs. Romans chapter, we are fellow heirs once we we join ourselves to him. Um, and so, in verse one of chapter seven, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the defilement of the flesh. So we have to cleanse ourselves of that. We have to make ourselves holy. Um, and um, think about multiple passages: Second Corinthians six, be separate; First uh, Peter chapter one, be holy because I am holy. Uh, and so we need to be separate. We need to think about ourselves and think about what holiness is, what being sanctified is, and make sure that we are, we continue to keep ourselves separate from things in the defilement of the world and keep ourselves holy and sanctified. So I'm going to pause and take a sip and then continue on. Okay. I don't think I'm going to hit my goal of finishing chapter 7, but that's good. It's good time well spent, I think, talking about this passage. Um, and so Paul starts out, I'm going to pause one more second because I paused and then I kept talking, which I have a tendency to do. Okay, good. So Paul continues on with a similar plea that what we see in chapter 6 in verses 2 and following. But what I want us to do, as I've tried to do each week, 
is read through the entirety of chapter 7, just so that we make sure we understand the context of all that's said. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicted without fears within But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted, he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. For though I caused you sorrow in my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is produced, for the sorrow that is in accordance with the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, This very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in this matter. For although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more towards you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So going back to picking up in verse 2, talks, again, making a similar appeal for them to open their hearts, Uh, very similar to what we saw in the preceding chapter. Paul wasn't condemning them, he says in verse 3, only condemning those that are the the false teachers. Uh, Again, Paul speaks to them directly and boldly uh, with the desire and the the sharing of his love for them and his concern for them. Uh, Shares with them in verses 5 uh, six and seven, how he was concerned for them as he came into Macedonia uh, and did not find Titus there. Uh, we can look back at chapter two in the same, uh, in, in Second Corinthians, uh, Paul shared that he came not finding Titus um, in Troas. Um, 
here he shares that he continued his travels on in search of, um, I guess, some report from the church at Corinth. Uh, and here in these verses, troubles without. So we know of some of the troubles that he endured and the difficulties from those that were opposing his teaching. But also I think here for our, for our topic here today, the, the internal concerns. So his love and his concern for the church at Corinth. Um, and I think I want to touch just briefly on verse 6. Um, he hears from Titus, and then in verse 6 he says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And so even though it was Titus who came and shared the good report, Paul attributes that comfort to God. And again, I think in all things we should give thanks to God and, and give that relief, that comfort comes from God. It, yes, it was given to, to Paul by Titus, but Paul realizes, as should we, that as we get a good report, as we hear uh, positive things about brethren, that's from God. Um, it's not us. It's not Titus's power as a preacher. Um, it's it's God that delivers that increase. Um, I thought about several passages, uh, Psalm 27, you know, if God is with us, whom should we fear? Um, it's James chapter 4, verse 8, come close to God and he will come close to you. If we draw close to him, he's going to provide that comfort for us. So Paul continues on in verses 8 and 9, rejoicing over their response to the letter um, and, godly, and speaking to that godly sorrow that led to repentance. Um, so verses 8 and 9, uh, for all, all, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that this letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So he had sorrow when he initially wrote the letter. So as is the case for Paul, is the case for us, when we have to approach someone in sin, it's not an easy thing. It's not something that anybody relishes doing. Uh, I think anyone who's addressed an individual that's in sin, it is a painful experience. And I think that's what Paul is communicating here. But he's joyous that even though he, he didn't want to make this correction, this correction, the letter, um, did correct the matter. Uh, they turned from their sin. They turned to God. And so in that, he was joyous. Um, so we think about um, some of the principles Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, restore such a person with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you not be tempted as well. So kind of to our topic we were talking about or touching on, we need to be careful as we're correcting someone that we use the right love, the right gentleness, but also we need to guard ourselves that we not fall into that same error. So it's that attitude that we should take when we're correcting a brother, uh, that although he he regretted having to write the letter. It's not that he regretted making the correction. He regretted the difficulty, the pain that he might have caused them, uh, but was joyous in that they turned. Um, I think to, um, to that gentleness, but I also think, and, and let's turn over to Jude 
um, Jude 1, um, just briefly, um, not that we need to use gentleness, we need to have love, but there comes a time, and I think I've referred to this in, in um, previous lessons, where we also need to be very direct, as Paul was, and, and as this passage says, pull people from the fire. So Jude chapter 1, I guess there's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude 1 verses 22 and following, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So again, here we're reading about different approaches to different individuals who are in sin. None of them says the let that sin lie. There's correction that needs to be done, but we also need to think about how we're correcting. Uh, some have patience, but some you jerk from the fire. You know, again, thinking about what Paul did in, in writing a letter to them rather than coming to them. He showed some patience and maybe some wisdom in how he approached those, the church at Corinth. We need to use the same thing. But it doesn't say that we shouldn't correct sin. Um, you might have patience. You might be long-suffering. You might be gentle. But then there's going to be some where you're going to, you know, I think about the kids. You grab them by the back of the neck and you pull them where they need to be. Again, I'm obviously not literally. But we need to be maybe literally. I don't know. If it's one of my boys, then I can do that. So I guess it depends on your relationship with that, that person. But anyway, we need to think about how we're approaching um, these individuals um, as far as making corrections and, and guiding them back, leading them back to, to um, the way. Um, so what I did want to spend our last five minutes or so talking about this godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. So in verse 10, we read, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Uh, death I'm sorry. Uh, so worldly uh, sorrow, I think, in my mind, leads to regret, but it's not a regret that leads to repentance. It's a regret that I got caught or it's a regret that I'm being punished. Um, it's a regret around the consequences, uh, a sorrow around the consequences of the sin, but it doesn't lead to repentance. It doesn't lead to change. Um, we can think about... Um, we can think about as the plagues were coming on Egypt, and I don't think I've got it up here, but there's some reference in Revelation 16 um, around the... As let's turn over to Revelation 16, actually, rather than me trying to paraphrase um, and do a poor job of it. So, Revelation 16, verse 9. Revelation 16, verse 9. And men were scorched with fierce fire, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. They did not repent so as to give him glory. So, again, I think back to the plagues that came on Egypt. Uh, obviously, this is not a direct reference necessarily, but the plagues came on, a fierce fire as this passage comes on them. And rather than correcting their mistakes, rather than seeing the power of God and realizing their mistakes, they blaspheme the name of the Lord. And so as, as some, some, as they're faced with their sin, as they're faced with the difficulties that, that um, maybe should guide them back to the right way, 
Some may become bitter and resentful. And you think about Pharaoh, his heart was hardened. It was because he, he refused to accept that. So we need to, be, we need to have that godly sorrow that, that regrets our actions against God. And you think about Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. That's the kind of attitude that we need to have, that godly sorrow that, that regrets sinning against him and him only, but also, I think, regrets the price that his son had to pay in order to cleanse me of that sin, regrets my error, my stumbling because of what he had to do to remove our sins. Again, there's more to it, and we can talk about that whole idea of godly regret versus worldly regret, but it's, it's that realization of how, how worthless we are without him, um, how much dependence we have on him for all that we have, and by sinning, we're rejecting that. He's done all of this for us, and we continue to sin, and, and in this case, they had, there's some that had a worldly sorrow. They've refused to repent. They refused to turn back. They refused to realize how dependent they were on God. Uh, and so we have, to, we have to have not only turn from our sins, but we have to have the right heart as far as our regret and uh, uh, regret of our sins such that it turns, leads us to repentance. So we'll continue this topic um, next week. I know there's probably a bunch of comments, but I've apologize that I spoke too long. Thank you.